Have you ever noticed that all it seems to take for a place to become super haunted is one teeny tiny claim of paranormal activity? The first reports of anything off are always strange bumps in the night or an errant footstep heard down the hall. And before you know it, every Tom, Dick, and Harry Price is claiming that things were levitating and all manner of ghoulies were flying around and going boo. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a soft skeptic who knows there's more out there than meets the eye, like yellow cars that turn into giant robots, for example but appreciate some good, solid proof before buying whatever it is they're trying to sell me wholesale. In the absence of solid proof, I will accept lack of logical explanation, but you really need to give me the hard sell on that one. Recently, I was staying with a friend in an apartment she was subletting for a few months. In the middle of the night, I awoke to a series of thuds that came from somewhere outside the bedroom. My sleeping friend didn't stir. I nudged my friend, who, after sleeping like the goddamn dead through the first series of thuds, was now suddenly on her feet, running through the apartment, going, What? 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 I noticed an open window in the living room and said maybe the frame had knocked against the wall. My friend was adamant that she had closed the window before bed. I closed and latched the window. We determined that it had either been the window or the heater trying to compete with the cold air coming through the open window, and we went back to sleep. And then we were murdered. Just kidding. But what if we hadn't figured out where the noise had come from? We humans are highly suggestible, especially those of us like Fox Mulder who want to believe. We can convince ourselves of all kinds of gobbledygook. Then there are the Dana Scullies of the world whose job it is to believe in proof and data and facts. Paranormal researcher Harry Price started out as a Dana Scully investigating so-called paranormal phenomena in an effort to expose the tricksters and frauds of the world, mainly those in England where he lived. But by the end of his tenure on this earth, it seems he'd begun to drink the Kool-Aid as it were and was doing a lot less debunking and a lot more believing. We covered Harry Price in an episode back in October in what was originally supposed to be a bonus episode, but after 5,500 words, I still couldn't even get to one of his most famous investigations, one about which he wrote not one, but two whole books. So here we are once again visiting our pal Harry Price for a third time to learn the whole sordid tale of the Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in England. But hey, speaking of bonus episodes, did you know that for just five bucks, you get three bonus episodes a month? This is a cold hard fact, strangers. My strange and unexplained bonus episodes are like amuse-bouches for your ears. Like a mysterious runestone that some claim is proof that white people landed in North America a full 300 years before Columbus. Or a My Little Pony that took control of a human man. Cold hard facts, strangers. And for just two more bucks a month, you'll get all that, plus all the regular episodes ad-free. So join us over at patreon.com slash strange and unexplained for all the bonus content you never knew you needed. Borley Church, located in a small hamlet in Essex, England, was built in the 12th century. Small is an understatement. 
As of the last census, there were 110 residents in Borley. A rectory, for all you non-church folk out there, is not the part of the body where the poop comes out, but rather it is the house the church's priest lives in with his family, or her family, or their family. But in 1862, it was only ever a he-priest. At any rate, the original rectory burned down in 1841, and in 1862, the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull built himself and his family a new, rather imposing, gothic, castle-like rectory. According to a piece in Fate magazine from 1951, the rectory was, quote, substantially built of brick and stone. All the doors were thick and heavy. The floors were of heavy wood in some parts and stone in other rooms. Some of the windows, such as the dairy, the kitchen, scullery, and passages, were iron-barred, giving that part of the house a rather prison-like appearance. Lighting was supplied by means of oil lamps and candles, and the only water supply was from a deep well in the courtyard." End quote. With such a dark, foreboding castle built over the ruins of an old monastery in a truly minuscule hamlet of only a few dozen people, basically, it didn't take long for the old rumor mill to get fired up and run overtime. According to a piece by Kate Cheryl on Burials and Beyond, quote, Tradition states that a local monk began a secret affair with a nun from a nearby convent. After the affair was discovered by their superiors, the lovers were brutally punished. The monk was swiftly executed, but the nun suffered a far worse fate, being bricked up in the convent walls and left to suffocate and die. Relievedly for the monk and nun, the story and the monastery seemed to be little more than local legend, with no historical basis at all." End quote. But we all know that a story doesn't have to have a shred of truth in order for it to take wing. And less than a year after the Reverend Bull and his family moved in, local school children were claiming to have seen the ghost of a nun on the grounds of the Borley Rectory. And a few of the Bull children even recalled the first time they'd encountered the holy apparition. A piece for Fate magazine from 1951 said this, Quote, Miss Ethel Bull and her sisters Frida and Mabel, daughters of the Reverend Henry Bull, were born in the Borley Rectory. They have assured me that on a June afternoon when they were returning from a garden party and had just entered the rectory garden, they all three simultaneously and quite clearly saw the figure of a nun walking slowly on the other side of the lawn. They were astonished, as although the apparition had been seen many times at dusk, they had never before seen it in daylight. Miss Ethel Bull ran into the house to bring a fourth sister to see the phenomenon, and fortunately found her immediately. All four of them watched the gray figure walk slowly across the lawn. As she neared the trees which bounded the lawn, the nun gradually faded and disappeared from their sight." End quote. But it wasn't just children and hysterical young women. Grown men who knew nothing of the rumors and legend also claimed to have seen her. Strangers and residents alike said they'd seen the lonely nun on her sad walk through the garden. One of the reverend's sons said he frequently heard footsteps behind him, but when he turned to look, no one was there. Some villagers refused to walk past the rectory alone at night, and apparently Reverend Bull bricked up a window in the dining room through which a family insisted a ghostly figure would peer at them while they ate. Bricking up a window seems drastic, like... A curtain probably would have done the trick, no? 
Both the Reverend and his wife eventually died in a room called the Blue Room, which sat directly over the library and overlooked the part of the garden through which the dead nun would take her strolls. After the Reverend's death, his son Harry took over as the parish reverend and continued living in the rectory. And, as is the way with hauntings, the paranormal occurrences inside the house increased in both frequency and severity. Harry and his siblings, who remained in the house, reported phantom footsteps in the hallways outside the bedrooms. The footsteps were heard to approach the door, stop, and knock three times, which was actually pretty polite. A tall man in dark clothes was often seen inside the house, to which I say a hearty, no thank you, sir. One of Harry's sisters, who isn't named in the article because who cares, claimed to have been awoken with a slap when no one was around. Also, loud crashes were heard in the house, with no sign of anything having fallen or been disturbed at all. Soon, the living quarters off of the horse stables, which was completely separate from the house, were also entertaining their own paranormal manifestations of one sort or another. Harry told his family he frequently saw the... Dwarf-like figure of an old man who he said appeared to him on the lawn. He would raise one arm above his head, then turn and run down the drive and disappear. The groom gardener, that is, the man who served double duty as both the horse guy and the flower guy, and his wife left the grounds after only three years because of the incessant phantom crashes and bangs. Harry stuck it out, though, and died in 1927 in the same room as his parents, the Blue Room. I don't know what happened to his siblings or where they went, but the year after Harry died, after offering the job of clergyman of the haunted rectory to about a dozen other men who were like, no thank you, sir, the intrepid Reverend Eric Smith and his wife Mabel, which I will go on record saying is the best name of all time, were like, I ain't afraid of no ghosts, and took over the church and moved into the Borley Rectory. Actually, it seems the Smiths were from out of town and didn't know about the spooky rumors surrounding the Borley Rectory. I honestly don't think anyone bothered to tell them after he took the job. The Smiths, though, would soon learn they weren't alone in the Rectory. It started with knocks and bangs loud enough to wake them up at night. The Smiths tried changing bedrooms frequently so as to trick the ghosts, I guess. According to the Smiths, the noises were loudest in the bedroom over the kitchen and in the blue room. And remember, these people allegedly had no idea about the history of the house. According to Fate magazine, quote, within a week, intermittent bell ringing started. The bells are of the old-fashioned spiral spring type and rung by bell pulls in the rooms. The bells themselves, some 20 of them, were hung high up in the kitchen passage just off the hall. Time after time, a bell would ring from one of the rooms, though they were all empty since the only people in the house were Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It was rarely that they could prevail on a maid to stop in the house for more than a week. Keys were frequently picked up and replaced in the locks. The key to the library door was often found at the foot of the main stairs, several feet from the door. At times, only an hour or so would elapse between the time a key was replaced and its being found on the floor again. A variation of this phenomena was the locking of doors. This was often extremely inconvenient. On many occasions, unlocked doors were found locked and vice versa." End quote. 
And then, one day, Mrs. Smith was cleaning when she found something the size of a football wrapped in brown paper in a cupboard in the library. It was a human skull, just wrapped in paper and sitting in the cupboard. You know, like human skulls do. No one could account for the errant skull. The Bull family apparently knew nothing about it. According to the Burials and Beyond blog, it was a female skull, though how they could have possibly gleaned the sex of a detached skull is anyone's guess. Perhaps it had eyelashes and lipstick. Mrs. Smith gave the skull a Christian burial in the church graveyard. But very soon after that, conditions got a whole lot hauntedder. There was a tap-tap-tapping behind a dressing room mirror that only happened whenever Mrs. Smith approached it, and heavy wooden shutters somehow freed themselves from their open position and slammed themselves shut. According to Fate magazine, quote, These shutters were exceptionally heavy and require considerable force to bring them together. They were each about six feet high and three feet wide. It was a common thing for them to hear the brass rings, which are let in the wood frames and used for pulling them together, rattling, end quote. At their wit's end, the Smiths decided to reach out for help. They wrote to the Daily Mirror asking for the name and number of an organization that might be able to assist. So, Gen Z, the next time you wonder how people looked things up before the internet, just know that they literally had to send a letter to a newspaper asking them to basically be their Yellow Pages. Oh, the Yellow Pages was a big book of names and addresses of all the businesses in your area. It was like the White Pages, but for businesses. Oh, the White Pages was a big book of names and addresses of all the people in your area. It was like an encyclopedia, but for neighbors. Oh, an encyclopedia, you know what? Never mind, just Google it. At any rate, on June 10th, 1929, the Daily Mail published their story and soon had the interest of one of the most prominent psychical researchers of the time. And this, strangers, is the point in the story where our new bestie, Harry Price, enters stage right. Famed Victorian-era ghost hunter Harry Price wasted exactly zero time and got to the Borley Rectory on June 12th, just two days after the piece ran in the Daily Mail. If I had to guess, I would say he was trying to beat the Society of Psychical Research there. Price helped found the SPR and walked away over irreconcilable differences about ghosts. According to a piece in the Daily Mail from June 14th, Price, his secretary, the Smiths, and presumably the reporter, quickly witnessed enough paranormal events that, according to the Mail, quote, Mr. Price, who is a research expert only and not a spiritualist, expressed himself puzzled and astonished at the results, end quote. The article continued, quote, The first remarkable happening was the dark figure I saw in the garden. We were standing in the summer house at dusk watching the lawn when I saw the apparition which so many claim to have seen, but owing to the deep shadows it was impossible for one to discern any definite shape or attire. Then, as we strolled towards the rectory discussing the figure, there came a terrific crash and a pane of glass from the roof of a porch hurtled to the ground. Finally came the most astonishing event of the night. 
From one o'clock until nearly four this morning, all of us, including the rector and his wife, actually questioned the spirit, or whatever it was, and received at times the most emphatic answers. Our questions, which we asked out loud, were answered by raps apparently made on the back of a mirror in the room. And it must be remembered that no medium or spiritualist was present, end quote. And, stranger, if you're on the edge of your seat to know what the questions and their answers were, I'm afraid you're SOL. We all are. The author of the article literally didn't write another word in the piece about the most astonishing event of the night. If I wrote something like that in a script without any follow-up, my producer would be like, are you high? It's like telling the setup of a joke, but never the punchline. Anyway, the article in the Daily Mail still attracted throngs of looky-loos to the rectory who wanted to see the ghosties for themselves. And the sudden crowd did not deter the spirits. Indeed, it seems, the presence of more people seemed to encourage more paranormal activity in and around the house. Like the ghosts had just been waiting for a big enough audience before they really let their freak flags fly. Lights in rooms that were unoccupied went on by themselves. According to the Fate magazine piece, quote, One summer afternoon when Mr. Smith was leaving his bedroom, he passed under the arch which leads to the landing and was surprised to hear soft sounds of whispering over his head. He described them to me as soft and sibilant, but spoken with urgency and ending in muttering sounds. The voice was undoubtedly that of a woman. The words, don't, Carlos, were quite clear. Although many enquiries were made, no evidence of any person of that name was traced to anyone connected with the rectory, end quote. By the way, Don't Carlos is the name of my new band. Anyway, at some point, a vase had seemingly lifted itself, traveled across the room and into the hall, and flung itself onto the floor. The footsteps, thuds, knocks, bangs, and bell ringing became relentless, so much so that Mrs. Smith's health began to decline and the good reverend was like, peace out. He resigned from the position and hightailed it out of there. A new family moved in almost immediately. Reverend Lionel Foister, his wife, and their two-year-old daughter moved in in October of 1930. The Foisters kept a detailed journal of the paranormal goings-on in the rectory. The 100-page document chronicling a little more than a year began with this note. The only pretensions that these notes claim is the very simple one that it is a record of fact and is therefore true. Experiences recorded can be vouched for by my wife and myself. Many were also witnessed by other disinterested people. They have been recorded just as they happened. Listen, the guy said it's a record of fact, so obviously it's true. Like, what more do you want? First, Mrs. Foister was receiving visits from the ghost of Reverend Bull, the man who'd built the rectory and lived there with his family for decades, and whose bedroom, the Blue Room, the Foisters were using for their own. The fact of the matter is, folks, if you live in a house that's a hundred years old or more, chances are at least one person died there. Mrs. Foister had been unaware what the Reverend Bull looked like, and when someone showed her his picture, she was like, 
Oh, yeah, that's for sure the dude I keep seeing. But she was the only one who ever saw him. And as far as I can keep track of, that was the first materialized spirit anyone had seen inside the home. As far as I know, the nun in the garden had been the only ghost anyone had seen up until this point. According to the Fate magazine piece, quote, the next episode, although less alarming, was more material and exceedingly annoying. She had gone into the bathroom to wash her hands and taking off a wristwatch, which was set in a gold bracelet, put it on the shelf. Then, having washed and dried her hands, she turned to pick up the watch. To her astonishment, she found only the watch. The bracelet had disappeared. It has never been found. This bracelet was not the only thing that disappeared in an extraordinary way, but it was the only object of any value that was lost. On the other hand, things had an odd habit of appearing from nowhere. A small silk bag containing lavender was found one day on the mantelpiece in the sewing room. The Foisters had never seen this bag before and never did trace an owner. It would disappear for a few days and reappear in one of the other rooms. On one occasion, Mr. Foister found it in one of his coat pockets. After several months of this jack-in-the-box existence, it disappeared for good, end quote. Now, you may remember that the Foisters had a small daughter. I mean, isn't it possible that she was moving or stealing things? Also, people used to keep little bags of dried lavender in their dresser drawers to keep their clothes smelling nice, so the object itself isn't that unusual. And again, totally plausible that the toddler was having a laugh at her parents' expense. But books were also being mysteriously moved around the house, frequently including a large set of the Reverend Bull's books, which had been in the top shelf of a cupboard in the kitchen, which A, is a strange place to keep books, but also B, would probably be pretty hard for a two-and-a-half-year-old to get on her own. Though I suppose this episode might have happened when she was a little older, but still. And then Mrs. Smith told Fate magazine... I had been in the bedroom, the blue room, and had just come out onto the landing when something hit me in the face and nearly stunned me for a moment. I was carrying the candle but saw no one or anything. Apparently, the phantom blow she'd received was violent enough to have cut her face below her eye on her cheek. Things levitated and moved around on their own, furniture got overturned, the contents of some cupboards were emptied onto the floor, and, of course, through it all, the footsteps always with the footsteps. And then came the writing that appeared on the wall of the house. Sometimes the writing was unreadable scribble, but often Mrs. Foister said she was getting personalized messages, addressing her by her first name, Marianne, imploring her for help along with the words, lights, mass prayers, and get lights and prayers here, and ending with a few indecipherable words, the last of which seemed to read, His Body. The Fate magazine piece claimed, quote, It is alleged that these writings appeared spontaneously, and there is good evidence to support this contention, end quote. Oh, is there? Well, he doesn't provide any, except a scraping taken from the markings that showed them to be made from a graphite pencil. It was believed, because of the height the words showed up on the walls, they were made by either an adult kneeling or a child. And as the Fate magazine piece wrote, quote, 
Practically all of it has the appearance of being done with difficulty and with great urgency, as though in fear of interruption. In some instances, the interruption seems to have occurred. All of the messages start with clarity and firmness, but after a word or two seem to weaken as though energy was dwindling, end quote. The Foisters lasted an impressive five years at the rectory before throwing in the towel. Reverend Foister died only a short time after leaving Borley. I don't know what happened to his wife. And at that, the town finally decided not to subject any more reverends and their families to the spooky shenanigans happening over at the Borley Rectory. The congregation merged with another nearby church and the rectory remained officially unoccupied. That is, until Harry Price came back to continue his investigation. This time, he came with backup. So, while Harry Price's first visit to Borley left him puzzled and astonished, apparently it had only whetted his appetite. And so, two years after the Foisters left, Harry rented the Borley Rectory in order to do a more thorough, controlled investigation. You may remember from the episode about Price that he preferred to do his tests and investigations in his own lab in London where he could be assured that no one had been fucking with anything. In his own space, there could be no hidden magnets or strings, no people hiding in cupboards, no rigged springs or hinges. But of course, there were times when bringing a subject to his lab was impossible because said subject was well, either a whole house or a dead person haunting a particular house. In those cases, Price had a very specific and rigorous set of controls in order to ensure, as much as he could, that there was nothing hidden up anyone's sleeve, including taping windows and doors shut and pouring salt or corn powder on the floors to pick up footsteps. So Price rented the rectory. But he couldn't be expected to live in Borley for a whole year. He was, after all, a famous psychical researcher, and this was the middle of the big spiritualism reboot. So there were lots of people claiming all kinds of paranormal tomfoolery everywhere. So he hired 48 people to do the observing and investigating for him. Surely, though, he hired other trained paranormal investigators, right? People who had years of psychical research? Nope. Price put an ad in the Times that I can only imagine said something like, Make money in your sleep. Take a holiday to the English countryside and get paid. Price's justification, which he laid out in his book, The End of Borley Rectory, was that he wanted people... Who had never heard of Borley. People who were skeptical, cultured, preferably of the academic type... I wanted to eliminate from active participation in the case all those, including myself, who had had any contact with the rectory or its occupants. How he verified that they had never heard of Borley or were skeptical and cultured, who knows? I guess he just had to take them at their word? Price temporarily moved into Borley to set everything up to his specifications, but did so under surveillance so no one could accuse him of rigging things himself. Once everything was just right, he left the kind of thing you find on the counter at an Airbnb, albeit a haunted one. Quote, observers were told where they could get meals, what to take with them when visiting the house, how to make out their reports, how to investigate, how to control the house and seal windows, doors, etc., 
what to do if a ghost is seen and how to address it, etc. End quote. So it seems he didn't even train these people in person. Observers were to live in the rectory in shifts, always to remain in the house 24-7 while they were on duty. Of course, there were the -the run-of-the-mill knocks, taps, bumps, things moving around on their own, including a 50-pound bag of coal moving 18 inches by itself. Though TBH, I don't think anyone witnessed it move. It seems as though it was in one spot, and then it was in another, and everyone claimed they hadn't moved it themselves. As well as the obligatory phantom smells and cold spots. And, of course, the nun. Always the nun. And also of note, Quote, a woman's blue coat, old, dirty, torn, and moldy, suddenly appeared in one of the rooms. We could never find where it came from. Then it disappeared for a time and suddenly returned. End quote. There were extraordinary noises during a seance. Someone got locked in a room, even though the key was in the lock on the inside of the room. And wall scribblings, one of which appeared while someone was observing it. But the thing is, a lot of what the observers observed was actually observed by people Price hadn't vetted. At least one pair of observers invited people over and in at least one instance even left them at the house alone so they could go run errands. Over the course of a few seances, Price believes his observers determined the identity of the nun. Her name was Marie Lair, a 19-year-old French novice, which I think is a nun in training, who had been strangled by someone named Waldegrave in 1667, and that her remains could be found at the, quote, end of a wall, end quote. The observers also reported a ghost named Sunex Amiers warned the group that he planned to burn down the rectory on March 27, 1938, at which point the remains of the murdered nun would be revealed. But March 27, 1938, came and went, and the rectory was still there. And soon, Price and his observers vacated. After Price's year was up, a man named Captain W.H. Gregson bought the property, and on February 27, 1939, Borley Rectory did indeed burn down. The significance of the date predicted by the ghost and the actual date being exactly one year and one month off would be really cool and creepy, I suppose, if it wasn't later determined that Gregson burned the rectory down on purpose. After the rectory burned down, Price returned to Borley with a backhoe and dug up the land near where he believed the nun's bones would be. And wouldn't you know, he found some bones. He asked to give the bones a proper Christian burial in the Borley Cemetery, but the powers that were were like, bro, those are pig bones. Get all the way out of here with that. And then when the remains of the rectory were torn down, Price claims that a brick had magically levitated above the rubble. Harry Price milked the Borley rectory for not one, but two books, both of which were received very well. Sir Ernest Jelf, senior master of His Majesty's Supreme Court, was so convinced by the evidence put forth in Price's book that he said he was, quote, at a loss to understand what cross-examination could possibly shake it, end quote. He was the senior master of the Supreme Court. Price's former organization, the Society of Psychical Research, was kind enough to wait until Price died before eviscerating him and his claims in a book titled The Haunting of Borley Rectory. 
in which they accuse Price of distorting and embellishing reports to make them more dramatic than they were. They also accused Marianne Foister of fabricating a lot of the stories during and after her time there. And then, in 2000, a man named Louis Mayerling, who said he'd vacationed at Borley Rectory in the summers back when the Bull family lived there, wrote a book called We Faked the Ghosts of Borley Rectory, in which he laid out pretty much all the ways the Bull family pulled off ghostly hoaxes, including ringing the maid bells by reaching in through a window from the outside of the house. According to a piece in The Guardian by Amelia Hill in December 2000, Quote, Mayerling arrived in the house on the Essex-Suffolk border in 1918 to find the eccentric Reverend Harry Bull and his family of 14 children taking active delight in perpetuating local stories of a spectral nun, a family ghost, and paranormal activity in the area. The house was the embodiment of eccentricities of many kinds, Mayerling remembered. He reveals in the book how a magic piano that the Bulls claimed was played by spirit hands was in fact activated by the six-year-old Mayerling plucking the piano strings with a poker from the safety of a nearby gap in the wall, end quote. And so, in the end, it seems, an eccentric family, most likely playing parlor tricks just for fun, managed to create a legend that lasts to this day. Some people are naive and gullible. Some are bored. Some want to sell books. And some just want to be in with the in crowd. There are many reasons why rumors, even outrageous ones like ghosts and poltergeists, spread voraciously and grow like the mold atop that pint of plain yogurt you bought when you told yourself you were going to start eating healthier. Maybe the reason the tales of haunting seem to gain severity as time goes on is because with each retelling of the story, details are added, little embellishments to make it more exciting, and before you know it, an errant creak in a floorboard or wind blowing a curtain becomes a full-fledged haunting. And decades after the people who started it in the first place have been all but forgotten, their story continues. So, after all is said and done, it's not so much the ghosts that haunt us, it's the stories we tell. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. You know One Minute Mysteries? Someone is found dead under seemingly impossible circumstances and you have one minute to solve the case? We'll be visiting two real-life mysteries that are seemingly impossible to solve. The Locked Door Murders of Isidore Frank and Letitia Turow. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Jordan Kai Burnett, and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a topic we should cover, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. 
If you don't like the show, you can leave a terrible review. The name of the podcast is Homo Erectus Walks Among Us. 